You're listening to Bottom Shelf Bitcoin. This is episode 32. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, the podcast that puts Bitcoin knowledge within everyone's reach. As always, I'm your host, Josh Humphrey, and today my guest is Vijay Boyapati, uh, author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. Um, Vijay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. It's great to talk to you. And uh, I, I, uh, I hope your listeners will forgive me. I have a cold, so I'm going to sound a little bit funny. That's all right. Um Am I? I'm, I am saying your name. Am I saying your name correctly, or did you uh, said it really well? You said it better than I can say it. I <laughs> I say my name with an Australian accent, so I, I I kind of butcher my own name. But you you actually did a really good job. Cool. All right. So um, yeah, I mean you you wrote bullish case for Bitcoin. It's been a while now. Um, and then, uh, well, actually, before we get into that, I don't know why I do this out of order sometimes. Let's. Can you kind of give us a little bit of your background and uh, and then kind of how you got into Bitcoin? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Australian. You can probably hear that in my accent. Um, I came to the United States in 2000, so almost 20 years ago, uh, to do a PhD in computer science, and I. Uh, ended up taking a job offer instead this was back in the you know huge dot-com boom and bust that happened back then um and i eventually settled uh um uh, at google i um got a job at google and uh i was there for several years i i i left google and then i went and campaigned in the 2008 presidential election um for ron paul and uh, did a bunch of other stuff, um, startups, various startups I worked for um, since then. Um, but uh, how I got into Bitcoin, it was it was in 2011. I had a bet with a friend of mine who I used to work with at Google about what the Federal Reserve would do at their next policy meeting. And the bet was for a single single silver eagle, which at the time was worth fifty dollars. And I won the bet, uh, and and so I said, you know, can I have my silver eagle? And my friend said, well, instead of giving you a silver eagle, how about I give you this thing called Bitcoin? And I was like, what's that? I don't even know what that is. And he kind of explained that it was this new kind of money, and. And my friend is really brilliant, um, one of the best investors I know. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll take that instead of the Silver Eagle. And so I had to, uh, this was 2011, so there weren't, you know, really good wallets or explorers or anything like that. This was before Coinbase and, and most of the websites people know about. And so I had to download the uh, the core software and and uh, run it, and it began downloading the the blockchain and it took several hours and i was like what on earth is this like wh- why do i need to do it, do all of this to to get these bitcoins so i didn't really know what was going on and and my friend uh 
transferred the, the bitcoins to an address on my wallet and and he showed me on a very primitive block explorer he said look here are the bitcoins that i sent you it's just a, a string of numbers and letters and i was like what the hell is this uh but that that sparked my interest and um i you know i did a bunch of reading like most people who do when they go down the rabbit hole and and i pretty quickly understood bitcoin as a monetary phenomena and i'd been interested in austrian economics for a long time and i think that uh that gave me the tools to understand what bitcoin was about and there was a whole bunch of interesting debates around bitcoin at the time like whether or not it was a, a monetary good whether it could be money whether it satisfied um ludwig von mises's regression theorem or not um and so uh, you know, I didn't invest in Bitcoin for a while, but I was absolutely fascinated with what it was from an uh, economics point of view. Okay, well then I'm I'm going to ask a, a question I wasn't planning on asking, but so then I forgot that you had worked for Ron Paul. Do you? And I, I'm assuming then you you know some maybe some people over at Mises or something like that. Do you feel like there's a because I I get this kind of feeling that there's this disconnect with the older generation of like. Austrian economics people that they're not really they don't really think Bitcoin works because it's intangible. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate because I think um, uh, some of the people at the Mises Institute are absolutely brilliant, but yeah, they, for sure. they they have missed, in my opinion, they miss misunderstood the two most important monetary f- phenomena uh, in the last decade. They 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 in my opinion, um, incorrectly understood um, the effects of uh, the the Fed's policy in 2008, and they most of them predicted uh, hyperinflation. And I, I wrote a long paper on why I thought uh, there would not be hyperinflation. Instead, we'd see something closer to mild deflation. Uh, and then they also, I think, really misunderstood Bitcoin, and the. The, the shame of it is that they have the, the right methodology to understand Bitcoin, but they just haven't been able to apply it very well. Um, and, and perhaps it is a, an older generation thing uh, where um, they really associate money with something being tangible and physical and you know having so-called intrinsic value, although it's a, it's a little ironic to hear uh Austrians talk about intrinsic value, people like Peter Schiff, because the Austrian School of Economics teaches that um, it's the subjective theory of value that's correct. Uh, Value is not intrinsic to any object. It's how people perceive it uh, to be valued. That's how it gets its value. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Peter Schiff, it it always frustrates frustrates me to see him downing Bitcoin because I think one of the uh, I don't know, precursor things for me finding Austrian economics and libertarianism and everything was this video I saw of him going down saying I am the 1% to all the Occupy Wall Street people. And that was kind of, I don't know, pivotal to me. So to see him still just like, I don't know, poo-pooing on Bitcoin. Yeah, is, yeah it's especially because he, he seems to understand gold pretty well. And, and so he has the tools to understand Bitcoin, but there's he's just misapplying those tools so badly that uh, that that he he's even gone so far as to say it's worse than fiat money which is absolutely absurd oh man 
All right. So, uh, getting back on course, then um, you wrote the bullish case for Bitcoin, which is a really great. Um, I don't know. I article, I guess, is the best term for it. It's, it the length makes it. It's. I would say it's longer than an essay, but. I don't know what the appropriate term is for that, but uh, this really great piece on on why you're bullish for Bitcoin. Um, you know, given the the current downturn, um, I, I say downturn the price the the decreased price. So let's say, um, are you still bullish or all those things? You know, I I kind of have an idea how you're going to answer this, and I have my own thoughts on it. But but are you still bullish in the same ways? Yeah, I am. I'm. I'm still very bullish. I'm in this for the long term, so I, I'm not. I'm not a trader, and I don't, you know, trade in and out of positions. I have the same amount of Bitcoin that I had before this uh, huge spike, and same amount after the crash as well. So, um, and in my opinion, this is just a natural cycle in Bitcoin's road to f- to becoming the global reserve currency, and we've seen several of these before. Uh, and the thing that's really amazing is is how remarkably alike these different hype cycles look. If you you take the shape of the hype cycle in 2016 and 17, and and the crash, um, and you superimpose that on the hype cycle in 2013, they're almost identical. Uh, so, and in and in fact, if you if you um, superimpose that uh, price structure on the price chart of gold from the 1970s to say 2010 it again looks almost identical and so i sort of speculated that this is an inherent social dynamic to the process of monetization nothing can go from being uh not valued at all having zero value to becoming a global reserve currency in a straight predictable linear path it happens in waves in these hype cycles um, and I think these hype cycles honestly have a life of their own. Uh, in bear markets, good news doesn't matter. And in bull, bull markets, bad news doesn't matter. So in 2017, I don't know if you remember, there was um, several pieces of very bad news. Uh, at one stage, China banned anything to do with Bitcoin, mining, trading, owning, banned everything. Uh, and that seemed really scary. One of the biggest markets on earth. Uh, is completely shutting Bitcoin down. And the price, you know, temporarily dropped, but it recovered very, very quickly. Uh, So my view is these cycles have a life of their own and external factors really don't matter that much. Um, So, uh, but but another thing I find interesting is how people react to these cycles. Uh, And they're, they're, in my opinion, two mindsets during... Uh, the bear phase of, of a hype cycle. And uh, one of the mindsets is how much money have I lost? How many dollars have I lost from my investment? And they, they say you bought 10 Bitcoins and you, you paid like, um, I don't know, $100,000 and now they're only worth like $30,000. So one mindset is like, oh, I've lost $70,000 worth of investment. Um Another mindset is uh, how many Bitcoins do I own? What fraction of the total number of Bitcoins do I own? Because the supply is strictly limited to 21 million. And if you change your mindset to 
the fraction of the total that you own, bear markets are actually a great opportunity. Uh, they're a great opportunity to increase your fraction. And, and if Bitcoin does, as I believe, eventually become the global reserve currency, then you've put yourself at, at a huge advantage over other people who will be trying to acquire Bitcoin at much, much higher prices. Um, and the last thing I, I, I kind of want to say about the price drop is there's uh, a very natural emotional progression that people who are uh, investors go through and this is true for any asset uh, not just bitcoin um, the first stage is people feel fear like is this is this really happening is it actually a bear market because during the bull phase there are a lot of pullbacks and each time people are worried that it might be the beginning of the, the bear market so when it's first happening there's fear uh, and then the next stage is despair, uh, the sense that actually this is really a bear market and, and maybe this is going to get bad and I'm stuck in a position that's down and who knows how low it's going to go. The next stage after that is disgust, the, the sense that I made a horrible investment. I, I just, I, I, I hate myself for doing it. I hate Bitcoin. This whole thing, like who, who convinced me to get into this? I, I, it's, um, it, it, it's really uh, a, a shame that I was brought into this uh, horrendous market and, and lost so much money. And then eventually the last stage is capitulation when people have gone through that feeling of extreme disgust and they think, I, I've just got to get out of this. I can't deal with this anymore. And that's when the price bottoms is when people just give up and walk away. Uh, and it doesn't mean it's going to come back immediately, but what we've seen from these hype cycles in the past is there's a plateau phase when the price kind of levels off and stays flat for a you know, fairly long period of time. In in 2013-14, uh, the market leveled off for almost two years. Uh, and, and my opinion is it could be even longer this time because the bigger Bitcoin gets, the, the longer these hype cycles will take. Gold went through a hype cycle that was 20 years. And I, I obviously don't think it's going to take that long for Bitcoin, but it, it's possible that we, we um, are in a bear market for several years uh and and by that stage most of the people who who got in just for a quick profit will have completely forgotten about bitcoin um and and will only start paying attention as it breaks a new high in the next cycle yeah that's funny when you say forgetting about it i um you know i've i've met some people in real life and they say oh what do you do and i kind of tell them because i have another job aside from this and this is just kind of a side thing and i say oh you know and i and I run a podcast on the side and it has to do with bitcoin and they say oh bitcoin is that that's still a thing like i thought that was over <laughs> you know, so, like i forget you know when i when i get in my nice comfy echo chamber it's like most of the world thinks like it's gone yeah well there's also there's also an interesting idea that one of my friends told me about that Certain people need to hear about something many, many times before they'll take it seriously. And and for the average person who isn't already sort of ideologically primed to understand why Bitcoin's important, they might need to hear about it 10 or 20 times before they pay attention and say, hey, everyone I know seems to be talking about this thing, so maybe I should check it out and maybe I should buy some. Uh, for people like you and me, uh, you know, we have 
maybe a political background where we already understood why it was important. So we didn't need to hear about it so many times before we recognized that this is something that we need to pay attention to. And then there are people who, it doesn't matter how many times they hear about it, they're never, ever going to pay attention to it because um, they're ideologically opposed to it. They're people who believe that um, the government should control the supply of money and that money should be inflated. And if you believe those things, if you deeply believe those things, you want Bitcoin to fail because it's really challenging your view of the world. So people like Paul Krugman and Nouriel Roubini are just uh, really vitriolic against Bitcoin. Any time it crashes, it's like a great excuse for them to say, I told you so, even though they've been saying, I told you so, since about $10. Uh, so I find that interesting how different people react uh, when they he- hear about Bitcoin. Right. I, You know, of those two, I don't know which one frustrates me more uh, because watching that um i don't know briefing or whatever you want to call it where nuriel was was speaking and it's like most of what he says about all the altcoins is true and then he starts ragging on bitcoin i'm like but it's it's different because and you why can you not see that it's different so i don't know that's just an aside for me personally yeah i i think of the two krugmans are much worse only by the fact that uh, he's much more influential. Nouriel Roubini is really a nobody. Yeah, uh, that's true. But Paul Krugman uses the uh, the status of having a Nobel Prize in economics, which you know is actually not a real Nobel Prize. It was it's a it's a fake Nobel Prize that was created by a Swedish bank. Oh really? I didn't know that. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, and then, you know, he's got the New York Times column, so that gives him a platform. Anyway, um, oh, I was going to go, so so where do you think, I'm, I'm, I've got the your bullish case for Bitcoin pulled up here, where do you think we're at in this, you talk about Gartner hype cycles, where do you think we're at right now? I think we're getting close to entering the plateau phase. I, I don't know if we've had final capitulation. My my guess is, you know, the emotional stages that I talked about earlier, I think we're in the disgust phase. If, if you <laughs> yeah. just, just by reading the news and people talking about it uh, and, and, and just the general sense that people are disgusted by the euphoria of, of the, the boom. And you'll, there was this article um, in breaker magazine about, um, the blockchain cruise and 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 just oh, yeah, just how gaudy it was and and um you know how they they hired women in scantily clad women to to uh keep keep uh the the people on the boat company uh it just sounded really sordid and um shady and and so i think that now the the media sort of views uh, what's happening in the community with disgust, and I so I, so I, I think there's there's that general sense that people don't want to be associated with this anymore. Uh, so it, it's not like in the bull phase where everyone was like, oh, "How do I buy Bitcoin?" And I remember when um, near the the peak of the hype cycle, uh, my the nanny for my children, she's an 
uh, an older lady in her 60s asked how she could buy Ethereum. She didn't even know she didn't even know how to pronounce Ethereum. And I, I remember it thinking at the time, we're getting very, very close to a top. Uh, when when my 60-year-old nanny is asking me how she can buy Ethereum. Uh, yeah. So so yeah, I, I think we we're getting close to capitulation. I, I don't have a specific price target. Honestly, I'd be surprised if Bitcoin dropped below two thousand. I'd be pretty surprised. Um but uh, I think I think probably by the middle of next year we'll be in the the sort of plateau phase where the price is leveled off and just stays flat for a while. Yeah, I <laughs> talking about disgust and people you know. It's kind of I'm I'm glad now that I didn't push my family to buy as much as I kind of wanted to last year around the holidays because it would make these holidays. A lot more awkward. Yeah, um. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think actually now is the time, sort of counterintuitively, now is the time to be pushing friends and family to try and understand Bitcoin. In, in the boom phase, you have people coming to you, and I'm sure you had this experience as well. I had family and friends asking me, uh, "How do I buy Bitcoin? How much should I buy? Is this now a good time to buy? Should I buy Ethereum? Should I buy Litecoin? All these kind of questions start coming in unasked for. Uh, but really, it, it's now that people should be paying attention and now that people should be doing their research and 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 looking to build a position in Bitcoin. Uh, probably the best investment strategy that anyone could have had in the last 10 years is just a dollar cost average during bitcoin bear markets so just accumulate slowly during the bear phase uh and and if if anyone had done that over the last decade they would have made a lot of money yeah for sure um so just real quick i'm going to kind of go through these things that you hit in your article for the audience if anybody hasn't read this i'm obviously going to have links in the show notes you Definitely need to read through this bullish case for Bitcoin. When did you put this out? Like beginning of, of this past year, right? Like yeah, February, I think it was about March, Feb- February 2018. But I honestly had been writing it for uh, probably six or seven months before that. I, I like you. Oh, really? I, I have children like you and um, I, I ha- have a day job as well. And so it, it took a, a long time. I think I wrote like a sentence or two every day. And, and as you know, the article is really long. It's uh, I think it's over 10,000 words. And I started writing it when I think the price of Bitcoin was 2,500 on the way up. And, oh, wow. and, and I remember thinking, I'll get this out really quickly. Hopefully, I can get it out before it gets to... 3000 and when i when i finished it uh the bull market had already ended and we were sort of on the way down uh so that was a little sad i i am um you know to give toot my own horn a little bit i am proud that i i kind of thought the bull market would end somewhere between 20 and 50000 I, I know that's a big range but um i had specific reasoning and and i wrote that in my article and and people might think oh he wrote that because he knew when where when the bear market ended but i actually wrote that part several months before the 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 bull market ended um and the, the reason I gave was that uh, above 20,000, Bitcoin's 
entire market capitalization would actually be a pretty large fraction of golds. And gold uh, gets a, a large fraction of its demand from central banks around the world. And I did not believe that central banks or nation states would participate in this hype cycle. I thought it would be driven mostly by retail demand. And I think I think that's what, what happened. I think the next hype cycle, uh, when it happens, will have a much larger component of institutional demand. Yeah, agreed. Um, so in this article, you kind of, I really like this graphic here. I mean, obviously go through, you guys read and uh, read all the words too and the explanations, but you have this really nice graphic here kind of side by side of Bitcoin, gold and fiat and ranking, you know, uh, give, a, give a letter grade on all these things of uh, these qualities of what makes them a good money of durable, portable, fungible, verifiable, divisible, scarce, and established history and censorship resistance. And the only ones that Bitcoin doesn't get an A on here are durable, fungible, and established history. So, uh, and I think established history is not something you can just make happen. It's just got to be time. And then fungible is something that's only keeps improving. So, um, yeah, I mean, just to kind of agree with you from where I stand, like reading through this again, I don't think any of those things have, have changed. The fundamentals haven't changed un- uh, unless they've gotten better. So, uh, you know, I agree with you. I'm a, I'm a long-term kind of guy, and so I, I'm still bullish on it. But, yeah, it's uh, it just it's weird to me like to see such big f- price fluctuations. And, I, and and you're right, I guess that's, that's part of it too. It's just that it's a retail-driven thing of – of speculation, um, yeah, and to some I, of that. I, you know, I, I've been paying attention to Bitcoin since 2011, and and to me, uh, this doesn't actually seem that bad. If you if you're around in like uh, 2011 or 2012, there was a crash from like I think it was 30. $35 or $32 down to like $2. And in percentage terms, that's actually, you know, worse, worse, yeah. worse than what we're seeing now is quite terrifying. And, and along the way, these crashes, they've all, they've always been people who've said this is the end for Bitcoin and it's not coming back. There was, this was a fad and, and it was just for a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, internet geeks and libertarians. Um, so, that's part of the despair phase, I think, is that p- the, the people who were doubters um, come out from under the closet like cockroaches and 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 you know start telling you, I, I told you so, I told you so, uh, and, and that it it really affects people who don't have that sort of long term view and who don't have ideological conviction in why Bitcoin is important. But if you've been around for a while, if you've been through one or two of these hype cycles, you'll recognize this this one's just like the ones in the past. Yeah, and so and for me, like I don't have that that you know multiple cycle viewpoint because I um, I may have said this on the show before, but like so I got in. Uh, it it was explained to me kind of loosely probably end of 2013 beginning of 2014 somewhere in there and so i think i kind of got in and didn't realize 
these, you know, these cycles happen. And so I got in just a smidge, you know, like in 2014. That's great. And then great didn't pay ti- attention. Great timing. Well, it would have if I'd really paid attention to it and dug into the tech and everything because I would have been more convinced and I would have bought a lot more of it. Yeah. You know, hindsight's 2020, obviously. But, and then it wasn't until uh, last year I started getting these emails from, from Coinbase and stuff that's like, how we're going to handle the, the hard fork. And I was like, uh, what is this? So I had to go back and read it and find it because I'd just not really been paying attention to any of it in, until that point. So You know, it, it's funny because I think everyone says they wish they had bought Bitcoin earlier, but I think the truth is for the vast majority of people, if they had bought Bitcoin earlier, they would have just sold it earlier as well. Right. You can find people on Twitter, like there's this famous tweet from someone in 2011 who, who said, I can't remember what the exact number was. He was like, I, I wish it, I wish it, I hadn't sold my Bitcoin at eight cents because now it's like right. now it's like a dollar. Right, right. <laughs> so, so you, you had to to, to really be. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense. What well, my point is, it doesn't make sense to say I wish I'd bought earlier. It only makes sense if you had bought earlier and also understood why it was important and why you should hold for a very very long time. Uh, so when people lament that they didn't buy earlier, I'm like, yeah, don't worry about it. You would have sold immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, speaking of the, the fork, um, <laughs> what's your take on, uh, on the recent Bitcoin cash? I don't know if you want to call it the fork, the splinter, the civil war, the hash wars that's going on. You you seem to take a particular interest in some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I like paying attention uh, to to what's happened um, from these forks away from Bitcoin because it was unprecedented that the fork in August 2017 that created Bcash uh, had never happened before. And a lot of the scaling debate was about trying to prevent hard fork from happening and trying trying to keep the community together and i honestly before uh the fork happened i really didn't want any kind of split i thought it would be bad for bitcoin i think i thought it would hurt its network effect um but now my view has changed in a way i think it's great for bitcoin because it purged all the lunatics from the bitcoin community (laughs) the, the people who didn't understand what bitcoin was and who tried to control bitcoin um and, and now what you have with the splitting of Bcash into two different groups is uh, it's really a war between a, a small group of egomaniacs. On one side, you have Jihan Wu, who's the uh, uh, CEO of Bitmain, and Roger Ver, who support um, Bitcoin ABC, their, their version of Bcash. And um, on the other side, you have... Uh, Calvin Iyer and Craig Wright, who um, who support Bcash SV, they call it Satoshi's Vision, which is just a ludicrous. Um, and but it's especially bad for Jihan because uh, Bitmain is sitting on paper losses of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, from the botched trade where they traded their. Um, Bitcoins that they had mined in 2016 for Bcash, uh, and this this sort of turned up in their their IPO filing. They had you know when a company files to go public, they have to to list their assets and um, the nature of their business. 
and it was clear that they had sold all of their Bitcoins for Bcash and they were sitting on a mountain of Bcash. I think at the time it was uh, worth a billion dollars. And the problem for them is they have no ability to sell such a massive position of Bcash that them buying Bcash was the reason that its market price uh, stayed as high as it did for as long as it did. If they tried to sell, its price would completely collapsed to zero and and i think the market has kind of understood this and now you see uh bcash is is trading at a tiny tiny fraction of the value of bitcoin um and bit bitmain's financial machinations resemble a failed state that's trying to prop up its currency by selling its foreign currency reserves which in this case was the bitcoin that it mined to maintain a price level for the currency that it was trying to defend which was bcash uh and so i think they're in 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 a lot of trouble and it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me if in 2019 we see the bankruptcy of bitmain wow yeah i think i'm looking right here it's like ABC is trading at 0.028 Bitcoin. So, yes, yeah, just, yeah, sad for them. Yeah, it, um, it also, yeah, it it also it, really destroys the credibility. Uh, the, the good thing about the, the split away from Bitcoin in 2017, it was a, a minority split. It was a very small but, you know, loud vocal group of people who wanted to create um, a version of Bitcoin with bigger blocks. But it was definitely a, a tiny minority. In in the case of the Bcash split, the community is split almost down the middle, uh, and so that's really devastating for uh, people in that community because they they're in in a state of constant war where they're uh, denigrating each other and the choices that each side has made, and they're potentially going to attack each other. They've they've threatened fifty one percent attack. Uh, of each other's chain and because they're using the same hashing algorithm they they can do that so uh they're they're under constant threat of destruction uh and there's really um there's really no way to get out of this because both sides don't want to back down and uh sort of game theoretically the the sv side has uh, an advantage in, in that they said that they um, they would 51% attack the ABC chain at any future point in time in history. Uh, so basically, ABC can never let down its guard. It can never uh, let its hashing power drop to a fraction of SV because they could potentially get reorg attacks, which means if you have uh, ABC coins then they could potentially disappear if that chain gets reorganized. Uh, so that that really harms confidence in, in that chain of both chains. And so I, I, I honestly don't see that either of, either of them can recover from where they are. And I think they're going to slowly um, fade into complete irrelevance uh, by uh, 2019. It wouldn't surprise me if the total value of both of them is less than 1% of Bitcoin's value. It's kind of weird. I'm I'm kind of uh, on the on the one hand, like I, I, I'm kind of glad that the original, like you said, when you when you said it, it gave an outlet for all those people to to kind of go off and do their own thing. And I'm grateful for it because, like I said, if it, if that hadn't have been happening, um, 
I, I probably wouldn't have paid attention and got back in and, and forced myself to learn the technical side to protect myself. But uh, at the same time, it's just, it's kind of sad and frustrating to watch people just do this and, and feel like they don't get what it was about in the first place. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a yeah. huge um, squandering of resources. There are, there are people who could be helping the Bitcoin ecosystem, who could be building software or who could be marketing Bitcoin and they're wasting their time on these irrelevant shit coins. Uh, and it's, to no benefit to anyone it's not making the world a better place it's just diverting energy to something that's not going to succeed do you think we'll see anybody come back to bitcoin development i mean you know i see people say oh well we let people come back and that's a in my opinion that's kind of a stupid question because the whole point of bitcoin is that you can't stop people from coming back as far as like so anyone can come back and submit bips or um you know, buy Bitcoin. So, so that's not even like a question to me worth asking. Like you can't stop someone from coming back in that sense. But, but do you think you'll, we'll see people from the, maybe these smaller projects that have to do with ABC or SV or anything like that? Do you think anyone will come back or you think they'll just like, you know, pride will, will get in the way? I think the profit motive will force certain people back. Uh, an example of this was um, Roger Ver diverted a huge fraction of the hashing power that he controls to mining ABC for a while because he wanted to protect that chain and uh, the SV chain had a lot more hashing power. So he temporarily diverted it, but he was making a huge loss uh, on on running his equipment on mining ABC. And so eventually he switched back to mining Bitcoin. And I think the same thing is going to be true of Jihan. Um, I'm not so sure for people like Craig Wright, who to me seems like a complete lunatic. I, 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 yeah. I don't know what will drive him to do whatever he does. It, it doesn't seem predictable at all. Uh, so, But in general, the people who are rational, I think, will eventually be driven back to Bitcoin if they want to stay in this space. Okay. Well, uh, anything else on the... Uh... The, the forks and the fork wars and the hash wars and anything like that? Uh, you know, I could spend hours talking about how ill-conceived the whole thing was, but uh, I, I think what we've said so far is enough. How much do you think... Well, let me ask you this real quick. How much... And, and obviously, this is not something that you can actually quantify in terms of energy or, or time necessarily, but, but where is that line between... Um, refuting bad arguments and and realizing that at some point it's a waste of your time and just letting people fade off into irrelevance because i don't know i think there's a certain part that uh you know particularly for people like rogers or um or csw that it's kind of like they only remain relevant because we keep talking back with them yeah that that's a an interesting point and relevant to, you know, Twitter debates uh, or public debates in general. Um, I, I see the point of those kind of debates not as as a means of trying to convince my opponent because often the, the person who you're debating cannot be convinced. Uh, they're, they're so uh, so entrenched in their opinion that they will never shift. The, 
the people you're trying to reach are the, the onlookers, the people who are open-minded and still don't fully understand what the debate is about, uh, don't understand all the issues, but they're interested in learning more. And, and so I think there is value in in refuting bad arguments and and putting forth the best arguments for why people should be interested in Bitcoin. And really, that's why I wrote, wrote my article on why I'm bullish about Bitcoin because I, I felt like there was so much misinformation and misunderstanding in what Bitcoin was uh, and what money is in, in general. And, and so I, I wanted to write the article for people who were still open-minded, who didn't really understand what Bitcoin was about and, and wanted to, to learn about the economic reasons why um, it's such a unique and interesting uh, technology. Very cool. Um, we've got a little bit more time here. Can I ask you a little bit about your time at Google? And uh, I know you kind of talked about this more in detail uh, on Stefan Levera's show. So I, I, you know, you don't have to go into big detail, but can you speak for a minute to kind of like the the stuff go, that went on with the censorship and and their partnership with the Chinese government, and then how that might be playing out today. Yeah, I so when I worked at Google, I was an engineer on Google News, uh, and I, w- I worked on Google News for I think three years. Uh, and near the end of my tenure, I was asked to write some code to censor news articles in China, because Google News um, they they wanted to expand the product offering, so it was offered in several countries around the world. And when it came to China, uh, the Chinese government had a, a bunch of restrictions on what kind of news you could show to their people. And and so if you wanted to launch a product like Google News in China, you had to comply with those rules. And so I was asked to write the rules to censor news articles in China, and I, I refused. And I said, I, I feel really uncomfortable doing this. Uh, and they took me off the project and put someone else on. And and really the reason I was so uncomfortable was I just I imagined a situation where uh, a journalist in China had the courage to write about some atrocity that occurred in China and that story showed up on Google News and then the Chinese government asked us to censor it and we re- removed the news article. And then I found out later that something bad happened to that journalist. I just, I wouldn't be able to live with myself so um if anything was like my own self-preservation i just i wouldn't be able to to handle knowing that i had been involved in something like that um and i uh i I was i discovered some emails actually uh which which gave some more details about uh, what was required in the censorship that i found that were when i was at google um it was on a mailing list and the emails were between myself and some colleagues and, de- and we were debating uh, um, whether whether the Olympics at the time, which were in China, were a good thing for Chinese democracy or not. And um, some of the details that uh, came up when I discovered these emails were that Google needed to comply with requests from the Chinese government within 15 minutes. So if the Chinese government said remove this article, it needed to be down in 15 minutes or less. And, and wow. I'm I, I, quite amazed at um, you know, rediscovering that. Uh, the other thing I found a little disturbing discovering those emails is the willingness of my former colleagues to, to not only comply with the censorship, but their, their enthusiasm in rationalizing why it was you know, actually a good idea for Google to do it. Um, and it, it's 
not a coincidence that the reasoning that they gave was the same reasoning that management had given to the whole company for why we were going into China. And I, I made this point on Twitter that I think this is a general point, but it applies it applies to politics, but it also applies uh, to the politics of corporations, and that's power creates opinion. When someone in power states an opinion as being the truth, it kind of trickles down to the people below them, and then they start parroting the same rationale. And that's what that's what I saw at Google. Management said, you know, going into China is a good thing because it's going to increase the amount of information that Chinese citizens will have, and that will have a democratizing effect on China, and people would ev- will eventually be freer. Actually, there was no evidence that any of that happened. It didn't make China a freer place at all. Um, And I think Google eventually understood this and Sergey Brin, who's one of the co-founders of Google, uh, eventually pushed for Google to leave China. And I think that was because of his own experience growing up in the Soviet Union. He uh, he really um, had a visceral understanding of what it's like to live under an oppressive regime, and he he did not he did not want to comply with China, and the the demands from China actually became more onerous of, over time, and so he reached his breaking point. But the interesting thing now is Google is is from news reports is is building a search engine for China is thinking of re-entering, and uh, the CEO Sundar Pichai just went in front of Congress today and denied that they actually had plans to enter China, which I think is nonsense. They devoted significant resources to building a search engine. Uh, and Sergey Brin is no longer no longer has a, a lot of influence at Google. He, d- he doesn't have an active part in running uh, the day-to-day of the company as he did back in 2010. Uh, so the people who are there now... I think are much more interested in the the profits that they've left on the table by not being in China. And uh, I I think this backlash that's happened now that it's been exposed that Google's working on this may cause them to not go ahead with it uh, because the backlash has been so strong and I think so unexpected. The people, employees at Google who are now threatening to leave the company because of this uh, so I, I think management at Google is taking it more seriously and certainly going in front of Congress and having to answer questions about why Google's censoring or aiding uh, the Chinese government in censoring its citizens, I think is making them think twice. That's good, I guess. Um, yeah, man. Wow. Um, anything else that uh, you want to touch on? I know you, you're going to have to go soon. Uh, no, I, I think that was a great discussion, Josh. It was really uh, enjoyable chatting with you. Well, we will have to do this again sometime. Again, guys, go check out uh, Vijay's article, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. I think it's evergreen. I don't think it's uh, any details in there that are that are that were current events at the time are, are negligible to the main content. So you guys check that out. Vijay, how can we keep up with what you're doing? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Um, real underscore VJ uh, at Twitter. Uh, I, I would like to write um, more long form articles, but because I have two young kids, uh, I unfortunately don't have much time. So I'll occasionally post a tweet storm of something that really should be an article. Uh, and, and so you'll find my thoughts there.
Awesome. Very good. Um, that's going to wrap it up. VJ, thanks for your time. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Josh. All right, Bottom Shelfers, that's going to do it for our show today. If you're not already following VJ on Twitter, go follow him. Uh, and if you haven't read The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, I've got a link in the show notes. Go check that out. And um, uh, yeah, be sure yeah, be sure to read that for sure. And then also um, I've got a link in there for an article from BitMEX Research that kind of dives more into uh, all the issues with Bitmain and uh, what VJ was talking about with holding on to so much cash and propping up the price that way and and all that so that's a really good read go check that out if you want to support the show as always uh like and share and subscribe and annoy your friends by telling them to listen to the show and uh, uh su- subscribe to the show on itunes or whatever podcast app you use so you don't miss a single episode yeah uh, you can follow me on twitter at bottom shelf BTC. And then if you want to support more directly, more financially, uh, I've got links in the show notes to my Tallycoin page. And if you go to bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash donate, there's a link there for my paynim address. Um, and if you're just trying to get rid of your fiat, you can use Patreon. Um, although uh, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention lately, but Tallycoin may be making Patreon totally obsolete soon. So uh, that's some interesting stuff. I may have to get DJ Booth on there and talk to him about that. He's, he's been doing some really good work there. Um, uh, and then I also have the, uh, the link on my site for the, uh, and actually it should be in the show notes too, for the Tuttle Twins books. Um, go check those books out. They're really great reads uh, for kids or adults, honestly. Uh, just a cool cool last minute Christmas gift, or maybe if you've missed in time to get it for Christmas, just a gift for kids, you know, or for yourself. Uh, I have no shame in saying that these books helped me kind of get some basic info before going on and reading the, uh, the thicker, more adult, uh, content (laughs) versions, uh, that they're based on. So, um, go check those out. Great stuff on Liberty and, free market economics and things like that, but at a very introductory level that's easy to understand. And I get a little kickback when you use my link. So um, check those out, read those books, buy them for everybody you know, and uh, come back next week. I've got Jeff Vandrew on, and uh, we're going to be talking about his QuickBooks integration to BTC Pay Server. So that's very exciting. From Bottom Shelf Bitcoin. I'm Josh Humphrey. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.